hurricanes, hailstorms, tornadoes, and wildfires. These are just some of the weather hazards that displace families and disrupt lives. Many of us are familiar with the scenes of devastation these hazards cause, and the recovery process for affected communities can take months, even years. In the most extreme circumstances, some may never be whole again. This may prompt many of you to ask, what's being done to reduce the risks associated with these hazards? To answer this question, the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety presents the Disaster Discussions Podcast. Join me, your host, Armand Brody, as I sit down with professionals in the insurance, science, construction, and resiliency industries who will help us explore the intersection of these hazards with the built environment. We'll bring you in-depth conversations with experts from across the country and highlight how science is engineering real-world solutions for home and business owners to create safer, more resilient communities. Join us for these discussions every month. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, go subscribe to the Disaster Discussions podcast on your favorite podcast app. We also invite you to engage with us on social media to ask your questions, share your thoughts, and to learn more about the IBHS mission. From the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety, we welcome you to the Disaster Discussions podcast, where we explore the intersection of weather and the built environment. I'm your host, Armand Brody. Let me catch you up just for a moment here on uh, what you might have missed, and hopefully you haven't missed anything. But uh, we encourage you to check out our podcast. You can go to ibhs.org slash disaster discussions podcast. You can also check us out on all major streaming sites. You can find our podcast in a multitude of places. Thank you so much for your response to our podcast at this point. It's greatly appreciated. On our last episode, we sat down with Anna Midgley and Brian Schwab from Western National Insurance. They help you get ready for winter weather. And on the day we are taping this, we woke up to a rude 25 degrees uh, here in uh, South Carolina. So definitely keep yourself up to speed on what's going on in the winter weather world with Anna and Brian. That's our last episode uh, of the Disaster Discussions podcast. And once again, thank you so much for your response, both our, on our video and our audio side. We really do appreciate it. A wealth of places you can find our podcast. And you folks have been looking for us a bit. So uh, we thank you for that. And we certainly encourage you to continue finding us and uh, hopefully you're enjoying what you've been hearing for the past three or four months. Well, you can't stop mother nature. It was just an act of God. You just never know which way the wind will blow. We never saw it coming. For generations, these are the ways disasters have often been described by others. But are these terms accurate? Well, to help dispel, describe and discuss, we welcome accomplished author, researcher, and scientist Ilan Kelman. Ilan is also the professor of disasters and health at University College London and professor at University of Agder in Norway. Ilan, welcome to the Disaster Discussions podcast. Did I get all of that right? So kind. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Really appreciate the opportunity and thank you for the very generous introduction. And thank you so much for being so responsive. Uh, this is a big deal for us to have uh, to have you here. We greatly appreciate your time, and uh, you are five hours ahead of us in, in another continent. So your time is precious, and we certainly thank you for being with us on the Disaster Discussions podcast today. 
Well, thanks for doing it. It's wonderful that you're able to work with so many people to get these messages out. We know how many people very sadly suffer from disasters, and we also know how much it's preventable. So anything that we can do to work together in order to uh, understand what the issues are and how to solve them, thank you for everything you contribute. Thank you for those words. So let's jump right into this here. It's a simple question, but maybe not as simple as uh, people might think. What's a disaster? Yes, absolutely. That is a fundamental question. And exactly as you're saying, it is not that easy to answer. Academics have written books called What is a Disaster? And we write, we discuss it all the time in conferences. We write papers about it. And there's so many synonyms, disaster, emergency, crisis, catastrophe. Of course, countries legislate about it. So they have to determine when are they going to declare a state of emergency? When are they going to implement crisis measures? And so they have to define it. For change, what I've tried to do is rather than make things more complicated, rather than trying to expand, I actually went through so much of this material. I looked at several English dictionaries and also had discussions in other languages in which I can work. And I tried to work out how simple could I make it? So I actually thought, well, you know what? If we concatenate everything together, a disaster then becomes a situation requiring outside support for coping. And that was really the fewest number of words that I could think of. Something happens, we cannot deal with it at an individual level or a continental level, so we need external help. And yeah, there's definitely some vagueness that could be refined. But ultimately, I would say it is subjective. It depends on context. But really, a disaster is a situation requiring outside help or support for coping. That's a long way from the definitions I've heard of disasters. How did you arrive at that definition? And has there been any pushback on how you define disasters? Because it's quite different from uh, what, uh, what I've been used to hearing disaster described as. Yeah, so again, it's really trying to say, what do we mean by it? When we consider all the words, how does it affect people? And so I was really looking for something which would indicate what does it mean to those who are impacted? And ultimately, if we cannot deal with something ourselves, if we actually need someone out there to support us because we don't know what to do, then in a sense, again, at an individual household or family level, that can be disastrous. And it might seem to be just regular or typical for a city or for a country or for a state or for a province but people are still suffering. They may have lost a family member. They may have lost all their photographs. They may have lost everything they own. And in the large scale, it may seem, well, you know, whatever, that always happens. But in practice, it really is a disaster for that individual. And pushback, well, we have discussions and we have disagreements, and I like this. So I wouldn't call it pushback. I wouldn't call it people saying that I shouldn't be using that definition. It's more that we are working on it and we are trying to do better. This isn't about one individual saying, well, you have to take my words, and no matter what, I'm right and you're wrong. I mean, that's just not a good way to go about <laughs> dealing with these difficult situations. Instead, it's, I'm making a proposition. 
I have a lot to back it up for me, but others disagree, which is actually very good and healthy and useful. They have a lot to back up what they think. And it could be we use different definitions in different ways for different contexts. It could be that we continue working together to evolve this field and to ensure that however we use it legally, morally, academically, and for ourselves, it is serving the people who are worst affected. How much have we evolved in how we define disasters, Ilan? You've been at this a long time. How has the, de the definition of disasters from your viewpoint, how has it changed? So yeah, I haven't been at this as long as many others and they have inspired me and they've taught me. Long before I think either of us were thinking about this topic, people were discussing it. And of course, the, the baseline phrase, a phrase which a lot of pe people use is natural disaster. One core aspect of the way this field has evolved is trying to explain why that phrase distracts. It really does not describe the actual circumstances and it means that rather than using natural disaster, we would prefer just to focus on the word disaster. Why don't we like natural? Because the disaster comes from people being forced into situations that they simply cannot deal with nature. An earthquake, a tornado, a flood, a drought, a tsunami, a volcanic eruption, a landslide. Those are perfectly typical phenomena from nature. What is not typical is building a property in a forest which burns or being forced to work or live in a floodplain without taking flood resistant measures. So what the field has taught me, what the founders have inspired me about is there's so much that we can and should act on to avoid disasters, which is why it comes from the choices of those with power and resources and opportunities to help themselves and others so disasters are not natural. The other big ongoing work within this field is really what word to use. Because I mentioned all the synonyms, but this is only English. Many other languages, many other cultures have different connotations, different words. And we need, really need to think about what do the words mean? What is etymology? Where do they come from? How have they evolved? How do we use them today? In English? and across other languages. It is particularly hard when far too many of the world's population don't know how much food they're going to get every day, are scared to step outside because of crime or assault or harassment, are terrified about going to work due to the high rate of traffic crashes. These are the everyday risks. These are the everyday realities is this a disaster to me? Absolutely. But it may be that talking to people about their day-to-day -day lives rather than the earthquake or flood or rock slide that may or may not happen in the next hundred years, maybe talking to them about their day-to-day -day lives is a much better way to try and make them safer and healthier, which could mean that even the word disaster is a distraction. And we don't know. We need feedback. We are working on this. We have a lot of evidence. We have a lot of counter evidence, but this is one very basic way in which the field is evolving to think about people, to think about daily routines, to think about everyday risks. And perhaps this means
putting them together with the more extreme or longer term risks, which means not immediately raising issues of calamity, catastrophe, emergency, or disaster. You know, you're a man after my heart because uh, working here at IBHS with an amazing team of meteorologists and scientists and engineers, when we were creating this podcast, we had a lot of discussion about that term, natural disasters. And not really a question here, I kind of want to set you up with this statement, but just the team around me here at IBHS, we made an effort uh, to make sure that we were not using the term natural disasters. And I'm fascinated by the fact that among those of you in the science community, those of us in the science community, we understand that what we call something matters. What we label it as, how we define it, how we describe it, how we communicate it, it does matter. And it's so wonderful that IBHS is on board. Really appreciate the work, but it's not just sort of us scientists working in isolation, or, or I would hope not. We need to hear from industry. We need to hear from the public. We need to hear from the nonprofit sector. We need to hear from governments and international organizations. Fortunately, so much, so many agree with us in IBHS. The United Nations Office for Disaster Risk Reduction agrees disasters are not natural and avoid the term. We work with so many non-governmental organizations and businesses who are absolutely on board and are saying this is a way to go. So yes, let's hear from people, let's work together. And if there's this agreement, wonderful, let us know. And then we can discuss and we can determine and see, can we move forward? What evidence is there for the different points of view and what is best fundamentally for helping people? We are science communicators. You are, we are here at IBHS. And I'm curious, where are some of the gaps that you've noticed in communicating the science behind disasters? We're gonna to touch on uh, your YouTube series uh, in a little while, but where are the gaps in communicating the science of disasters, Elon? It is very hard to move away from starting with the environment. Fully understandably, when we feel the wind in our face, when we feel the earth shaking, when we see that ash cloud rising into the atmosphere, that's what we think about. And we say, well, this has now happened. That's the starting point. So it does make sense. It's so tangible. The gap is moving away from that and actually having the starting point as being people. It really goes back to this day-to-day -day, uh, aspect, to daily livelihoods. Why are people poor? Why are they marginalized? Why are they living in dwellings which don't withstand a perfectly typical environmental event? What are the politics behind all this? What are the social expectations, structures, and norms, which mean that some people feel far more afraid than others? The starting point of people, why we are in certain situations, why we do not, do not have the resources or opportunities to get out of those situations, why so few people accumulate so much wealth, why there is a desire to remove opportunity and choice from so many others, and why often we just say, well, they were killed in the flood, that's the way it's going to be. We need to really fill in the gap of starting with people, 
their situations, their circumstances. We need to fill in the gap of why some infrastructure is built wonderfully and protects people and supports people and serves the people and other infrastructure collapses at the least hint of a bit of a natural event. So disasters are about people. Disasters are caused by society making certain choices for people to put them in difficult situations. The real gap is how can we flip around our thinking, our approaches, our resource allocation, and primarily our actions to start with people, to help people, which absolutely includes helping ourselves. So what you're essentially saying is when it comes to disasters, everything that we do as a society, everything's sort of interconnected. Is that is that what you're saying? Uh, absolutely wonderful summary. We, we have to... Let me explain why I asked that. Yeah. I'm sorry, Alon, but let me explain why I asked that. Because I can hear the argument on the other side from heaven knows how many people, and I'm sure you've, you've heard them. Kelman, leave that science stuff out of my day-to-day real-world experiences. You're bringing that stuff in here. You're shoving this science down my throat. But what you're saying is you cannot separate the science. You can't separate what we know in the science space from how people live day-to-day. Yes, and, and you're right. People do make that statement, and it is understandable. What we need to do is say, look, you are an expert in your own life. You know what you're going through. But I hope that in the same way you can teach me, I hope that we can exchange and I could provide something to make you have to help you work within your own circumstances to have a safer and healthier life. A lot of the suggestions that I have or might give do not apply to everyone. They simply cannot. And of course, I don't understand everyone's circumstances. I have my own life, my own concerns, my own opportunities. This is where it has to be a conversation. It should never be me as the apparently wonderful expert doling out my incredible knowledge to the poor, innocent masses. I mean, that's ridiculous. We are all experts. We all have so much to offer. We all have so much to gain. And by working with people, by providing information, ideas, actions, behaviors in different forms, I learn. Because someone may say, that's absolutely ridiculous. How can you suggest that? It's not going to work. Say, oh, yeah, you know what? You're right. And I've been doing it, which puts me in danger, so I need to change. We have the concerns. We know people are dying in disasters when they don't have to. So let's work together within all our expertises to ensure that it is valid, it is valuable, and the different knowledges that we produce, science and many other types of knowledges, are useful, usable, and used. What conversations have you had with what you just said? We're talking about people in their different areas of expertise. That includes the insurance industry. And this is the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety. What conversations either have you had in this space or what conversations are you looking forward to having with the insurance industry relative to what disasters really are and how we can improve? This is where I learned so much, particularly about the corporate world. 
And the conversations are often around time scale. So we want to be working with people so that they are safer and healthier every single hour, every day, but also so that the century scale and millennial scale and beyond, those issues are known, are accepted and are dealt with. Certain countries and certain structures do not permit the corporate sector to deal with all those timescales. They may have to report back to their board or their shareholders showing a significant profit after three months or six months or three years or six years. There also has to be the viability of that business. 10 years, 15 years of losses is to a large extent unacceptable in many corporate worlds. So I need to take this on board and learn from it, have these conversations about time scale and try and work out with them, where's money coming in? Where's money going out? How's it tabulated over what time scales and to whom do you report? This can make it challenging in order to, for example, help people who cannot afford insurance or in countries where insurance really is not accessible or is not ingrained in what people do. From research, we hope that we can then work with the industry and also the nonprofits because it's not just for profit, but there's plenty of nonprofit around insurance to think about creative mechanisms. People talk a lot about microinsurance. People talk about governments as the insurer of last resort. People will try to link different products with insurance. And if these mechanisms work, if it's helping people and it helps the industry be viable, then of course, this is where we are collaborating to try to do better. But the conversations that I would like to have are perhaps more difficult. They tend to be philosophical. What is insurance? Does insurance really help in the short term and long term? Should we be making a profit? And if so, how much? We also hear plenty of anecdotes. Uh, one example being that some insurance models and the way it's set up, the insurers lose money from premiums, but they gain money by having everyone pay premiums, pooling that and then investing it. Again, is this correct or not? Well, I need to learn. Is this useful, usable? Well, I need to learn. And we need to think about whether having one entity collect all this money and then paying it out in certain circumstances does serve the people paying money. One big fundamental philosophical question, why do we wait for a payout after something has gone wrong? Is there any way to make insurance useful, even profitable and accepted if people receive payouts when something has not gone wrong? Or does this make perfect sense academically and is entirely a non-starter practically? So yes, the conversations I want to have are the hard questions which we as scientists can provide even if it makes people in their day-to-day -day jobs uncomfortable. Because those conversations are so uncomfortable and, and, and philosophical and, and controversial, some would say, how do you approach those conversations? How do you approach politicians? How do you approach the insurance industry to get those conversations started? It's all contextual. And very sadly, I have made mistakes. I have offended people. I have annoyed people. And that's not good. 
We are not saying that controversy is bad. We are saying it should be constructive and should be engaging. Again, people are very different. And some of these conversations I have with the industry, with insurers, with brokers, with reinsurers, with some of the financiers, with the modelers and others, yeah, they're not interested at all. And that's difficult. So what is it about? It's about finding good people. It's about finding open-minded people. It's about getting support from them and giving them support. So ultimately they will and can be the leaders and many of them are already because it's, as you said, it's sort of that P word, right? Politicians. We are very fortunate to live in countries with a strong level of democracy. We are not going to get in trouble by criticizing our leaders. So we have that responsibility to try and influence our leaders in a fair and democratic process. How to do that? I, I struggle because understandably the politicians are under incredible pressure. They represent tens of thousands of people. They have a lot of interests lobbying for them who are, yeah, more powerful and more money than me, but working with the wider industry, learning from them. And again, trying to be constructive, even if controversial, means that sometimes we do have the privilege of sitting down face to face with politicians with power and business leaders with power and nonprofits with power. And when I make a mistake, as frequently happens, I hope they call me out on it and I hope we seek pathways to move forward. But we do have these opportunities and we were very fortunate that uh, one Lord in the House of Lords in the UK approached us to write a report on warnings for the National Preparedness Commission of the UK. And we did that. We went through over a dozen drafts. They gave us absolutely exceptional feedback. It was so helpful. So our knowledge, our ideas were getting to the people who matter. The report is freely downloadable and we hope it's having influence. So the conversations can be difficult. I would simply ask, tell me what you need, be open-minded, do not shy away from controversy, but let's be constructive. Let's seek ways forward, even if we disagree. And ultimately remember, we are trying to stop disasters and reduce their impacts. So let's keep our eye on that goal. Eyes on the prize. What about the construction industry, Alon? What conversations need to be had there? This is often the balance between serving the clients, serving the people who are in the buildings and regulation. I think we all know regulation is not the end story. First, it has to be appropriate regulation. Second, it has to do what's needed. Third, it has to be monitored. Fourth, it has to be enforced. And then a whole slew of other issues regarding it. Conversely, without legislation, it can be very hard to change people's minds and to ensure that they have a standard by which to act. So I definitely support regulatory approaches at all scales of government, but I would also call on people to think about going beyond that where it's appropriate and to ensure that the regulation does serve its purpose by making people safer. The construction industry are experts, the, the designers, the engineers, the architects, the planners, the people who can tell what masonry is like by feeling it. People who may measure out mortar 
and people who know it by expertise, by experience, by intuition. People who know how to work with timber and other materials, training, apprenticeships. This is where the whole construction industry is literally and figuratively building and protecting our lives. In general, they certainly do not want to see what they've produced collapse and harming people. So let's join with them and let's say, what do you need? Is a, a mechanism like the British standards useful for you? What training do you need? Can you adhere to it then? Are they monitored and enforced? Should it be wider continental scale with Europe? Or should it be more subnational, thinking more locally and contextually? What flexibility is needed? And yes, so much comes down to the country, the US, the UK or others. So much comes down to how they're able to operate for profit and not for profit within that legislative context. And also so much comes down to trying to work together to say, don't try and unduly influence the decision makers to kill people. Instead, let's use our lobbying power, our knowledge, our expertise in order to influence legislatures to save lives and make a far, far more viable construction industry for people to pursue the livelihoods and careers they want, which the majority of people in these industries are also seeking. You hosted a riveting series, and I do encourage you folks uh, who are listening and watching, uh, a riveting series on YouTube called The Science of Disasters with Alan Kelman. How did that come about? I was very lucky. There is something called pint of science, as in a pint of beer. And the idea is that they rent a room out in pubs, and the general public just comes out to hear people like me, scientists, talking about our expertise in all areas of science. So through pint of science, the telecommunications company Huawei said that they wanted to get some of this on YouTube. They put out a call for proposals. I put in my idea for disasters and they very generously uh, adopted my idea. So it became even more fortunate because they wanted to do this in person. Huawei does support local businesses and it was the Europe office based in Brussels. So they wanted me to hop on a train and go from London to Brussels for the weekend to record, which was fine, just as a new disease was emerging and starting to worry us called COVID-19. So we thought about oh, yeah. what the circumstances could be. We thought about what the issues were given that people were starting to float this very strange idea of lockdowns around the world. But we made the decision at the beginning of March 2020 to go ahead. So I went over to Brussels and we did the recording. It was meant to be two days, but it took us one day because the company was very efficient and so helpful. And then I came back and that was the last business trip that I did for, well, as you can imagine, quite a while. Because just a couple of weeks later, all of Europe was in lockdown. They then processed it, they edited it, we went through a production process and they got it on YouTube, hopefully supporting people who were very much struggling given the pandemic situation, hopefully recognizing that we could not take our eye off the difficulties of other events and phenomena like earthquakes and floods and tornadoes and landslides, irrespective of isolation and distancing mm -hmm. due to COVID-19. So we have this series on YouTube, which will hopefully last as long as people want to watch it, 
and I was very grateful that we managed to do it just before things got incredibly difficult. And again, the support from the local people in Belgium and from Huahi was wonderful to get these very core messages out there that disasters should not happen. And there's so much that we can be doing to help ourselves and help each other to reduce the causes of these horrible, horrible situations. You mentioned the pandemic and because we've established uh, that everything's sort of interconnected, what have you learned about human behavior and how that connects with disasters? What did you learn in particular from the pandemic? That the lessons repeat. The very positive, encouraging, inspirational responses by so many people locally right beside me and around the world is the same that we see in all other disasters, as well as the horror of those who set out to harm others, who deny the evidence which kills people, and who are not willing to support themselves and others in avoiding calamity. So the awful part of COVID-19 and other pandemics is they are just the regular, typical, usual disasters. People behave in a whole variety of ways, often having choices to do better than they do, and often sacrificing immeasurably simply to help strangers. And this is a story of disaster. So even locally in the place that I live, to see people come together during lockdown to help those who are struggling, to be checking on neighbors to ensure they were okay, to trying to arrange deliveries for people who had very good reasons for not going out. On the other hand, in the US and the UK, we had people denying that it was a pandemic denying that people were dying in the corridors of hospitals because there weren't enough staff or space to help them, denying the fact that vaccines actually played a significant role in getting us into a place where we didn't need lockdowns. It wasn't just vaccines, but they played a huge, huge role. And all credit to the amazing cohort of scientists, nonprofits and companies who were working nonstop to produce an effective vaccine in an amazingly short amount of time. So it really is this difficulty of knowing how much people are willing to give in times of crisis. Seeing that happening and being able to support people who were struggling. On the other hand, we then have to deal with those who are hostile, those who abuse, those who specifically set out to harm others. But COVID-19, other pandemics that we know about, Unfortunately, these sets of behavior were nothing new, nothing different. They happen, we witness them in all disasters. You wrote a book, Alon, entitled Disaster by Choice. And uh, I wanna sort of read this and uh, sort of set you up for, for the question. You say in the book, we're not dealing with the environment and we're not dealing with ourselves. Can you touch on that a bit for me? So this is exactly that ethos that disasters are not natural. What the issue is, is us. 
the environment exists and we need it. It's not going to go away. I mean, this is a, a basic point. We, do, we don't need to describe that to anyone. And floods help farmland. Seismic areas help water come to the surface and help to settle deserts. Landslides and volcanic ash are also useful for making arable land. In fact, what the environment does is phenomenally useful for us. So when we die, when our buildings collapse, when our businesses get interrupted, it really is because there is something which people with power and resources should have done, but did not. Disasters are not about nature. Disasters are about us to ensure that our buildings stand up in the tornado and the earthquake, to ensure that people can still get to their places of education and work in a flood or in a storm, or that they can shelter in place without fear of going hungry or thirsty, that they can safely evacuate without fear of being assaulted or harassed in the shelter, that if you have mobility restrictions, or other specific needs that you are confident they will be dealt with, that any animals you have, whether pets or service animals or livestock are dealt with, and that you know that you, your family and your kids are safe, sheltering in place, moving around, or in an evacuation shelter. We know what to do. We have success stories. We've seen it. We've done it. So why do we not do it in certain circumstances? Nature does not make that decision for us. Powerful statement there. And it goes right in line with uh, so much of our messaging here at IBHS. We talk all the time. And if you've listened to this podcast and you've listened to me talk with other guests, you've heard us mention the fact that we are not powerless against nature. And I just want to sort of set the table for you. We've talked about it um, consistently here during our conversation. But just can you put some meat on that bone for, for me to help us understand that uh, we're not powerless here? Um, what a wonderful phrase. We are not powerless. What does that mean practically? Well, at the base level, everyone should be ready to be on their own for two weeks. So whatever the environment does, whatever nature does, we should not expect external assistance for at least two weeks. Be able to shelter in place. Have enough non-perishable food, and if it's canned, obviously have can openers and not electric can openers because there may not be power. Definitely have plenty of water. Have hygiene needs met, medical needs met, such as prescriptions available. Flashlights wind-up or battery-operated, radios to stay in touch, wind-up or battery-operated because phones may not work, they may not be rechargeable, internet and other communications will probably go out, and if you're using batteries, have spare batteries, and definitely, in addition to medical supplies, first aid supplies, while being confident how to use them. Training in first aid and practicing is a bit much as as much about mental health as physical health. So those are the main issues: water, food, flashlight, radio, and first aid, as well as meeting hygiene and medical needs. That's easy to say. Many people cannot afford to do it. 
They can barely buy enough food for the day. They can't afford the prescriptions, never mind having it stocked up for two weeks or more. So this is where those who have the power to make that change, to deal with the wide-ranging chronic challenges of poverty, of inequity, of marginalization, of inequality, have to recognize too many people cannot afford to be ready. Why not? And operationally, practically, where you have the possibility, get involved in your local location. Work with politicians. Try to understand why we have a culture of forcing people into poverty and not helping them help themselves. Because for me, I'm so fortunate. I can be prepared and I hope I am prepared. I can look at building structures. I can try and understand what my abode will withstand or not. When warnings are out there, I have the ability to get information and I try to do it. And I have the ability to help my neighbors and others and I try to do it, hoping that when I need assistance, they will reciprocate. But again, the majority do not have these privileges. So it's the two levels of being ready day to day, doing everything we can and supporting ourselves and those around us. But it's also trying to change society over the long term to do so much better for those who right now cannot do as much for themselves as they would want to. When we spoke, we had a little pre-chat before we taped our podcast here, and you talked about breaking the inertia. What does that look like? What it means is getting involved in our society. Some people need a little tweak, a little bit of encouragement to stand for elected office, and they can become president or prime minister, or they can become a local councillor, a local trustee. Not everyone wants to be an elected official because it comes with sacrifices. So I would say what that actually looks like is trying to choose a career pathway that satisfies each and every one of us, but which is helping others and which is constructive. Go into business, go into the nonprofit, think about the United Nations, or I will definitely encourage people, become a scientist. Because that's the pathway that I've chosen and I'm hoping that we are helping people with our knowledge, with our work, although that's for listeners to judge. And I need that feedback even becoming an elementary school teacher, a secondary school teacher, this is how we influence society. People who clean up litter day to day. That means that drains are not blocked. So when it rains, the rain goes down the drain and fewer properties flood. All of these service jobs, the essential work that keeps society functioning, medical personnel, street cleaners, small business owners, who are serving the community. This is how we can all make such an exciting, positive and wonderful difference, provided that we choose to do so. Take the opportunities, create others, but recognize that we are also all limited in many ways. We all have constraints. So let's work together to build on all our strengths in order to fill in the gaps which all of us have. We have just a little bit of time left, Alon, but I do want to ask about this. What is the role of climate change relative to these disasters we're talking about? Climate change is a horrific symptom 
of the wider underlying culture and ethos that we want to exploit everything we have as fast as possible. That includes people as well as nature. So deforestation, overfishing, human slavery, human trafficking, species extinction, and human-caused climate change. All of it is about us looking for short-term gain for long-term pain and therefore causing problems for ourselves. Climate change is affecting the weather. We are seeing it now. The weather is changing rapidly and quickly, and it's because of us. Most weather, though, does not cause disasters because disasters come from people who don't have the opportunity, power, resources to deal with weather. So climate change is influencing the environment, and a lot of it is not good, but the connection with disasters is frequently tenuous and nebulous. One, one specific example is hurricanes, U.S. experiencing hurricanes. The number of hurricanes appears to be de declining because of human-caused climate change, but when one forms, it is stronger, so, so it is more intense, it is more severe. People have to deal with that higher storm surge, the, the increased rainfall, the faster wind, and that's not always easy. Some of human-caused climate change's impacts are absolutely terrifying, and we are seeing now increased death rates in heat waves from heat and humidity because human-caused climate change is pushing heat-humidity combinations into realms that we cannot deal with. It is beyond human survival, and we've not experienced it before. So hurricanes, you know, if you have money, you can evacuate. If you don't get fired, you can take days off work. If you have insurance, you can stay in a motel while your house is being rebuilt. But if you're a farmer and you have to be outdoors in unsurvival heat humidity, either you're dead or you lose your livelihood. And this is the terror that human-caused climate change is bringing to us now. We are seeing the deaths and we can attribute them. So there are disasters like worse heat waves than we have ever experienced, which are killing us and causing problems. So the approach, we know exactly what to do more sustainable livelihoods and lifestyles to stop us changing the climate to the extent that we are doing it. Ilan, as we prepare to wrap up here, give our audience some reasons for, for optimism here. What, what progress are we making based on your knowledge, the conversations you're having, relative to disasters, relative to climate change, relative to the conversation that we've, we've been having here over the past uh, 40 or 45 or so minutes, what are some reasons to be optimistic about where we're going in the future? Well, there's two levels. Number one is all the disasters we've stopped. So even Toronto, Canada in 1954 was absolutely slammed by a hurricane, Hurricane Hazel, killed over 80 people. And it, it, within the context of many other local changes, Toronto said this will not happen again. They moved houses out of the floodplain, turned it into wonderful, gorgeous recreational areas that make Toronto a green city, and other hurricanes that have gone through Toronto have not caused the disaster. Same with Bangladesh. Bangladesh has gone from a cyclone killing over 300,000 people in 1970 to dozens killed per cyclones over the past three years. So dozens killed is not good, 
Bangladesh, very sadly, is waiting for an earthquake to flatten the country. But the fact that they have reduced cyclone deaths from hundreds of thousands to dozens is an example of optimism. And we've been collecting these anecdotes, these stories, and proving them with evidence to show how many disasters we have stopped. So that's very much one level. The other level is we know what to do. We have the knowledge. We have calculated how much money is saved by stopping disasters and, of course, lives. Many people prefer money as a metric, which is rather sad, but we are willing to explain how much money is saved in addition to lives. We have the knowledge. We know how to retrofit and build infrastructure so it does not collapse in earthquakes or tornadoes or other such environmental phenomena. We know what to do. We've come so far in doing it, and that is what makes me an optimist. It is not putting on rose-tinted glasses, because we have a long way to go. People are still suffering, and we still wake up seeing these terrible headlines that a disaster has happened. But let's not get mired in the death, destruction, and hopelessness while still being sympathetic to it and helping people going through it. Instead, let's say what we can do now, what we ought to be doing, and work together to say, look, I understand you cannot or do not want to do it now. What can I offer? What do you need? So we do move forward together constructively, stopping disasters, saving money, but ultimately saving lives and helping humanity. He is author, professor, researcher, scientist, host, Alan Kelman. I'll, I'll tell you this right now. We must have you back on this podcast. Uh, there are so many other topics we could discuss, and uh, we're out of time now. But I certainly would like to have you back at some point in the future, Alan. Well, thank you. And thank you for the work you do. IBHS is an inspiration, and it is working together that will lead to success. Thank you. Thank you so, so much for those words. He is Dr. Alan Kelman. I want to thank you once again for joining us on the Disaster Discussions podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Disaster Discussions podcast, an IBHS production. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or watch the podcast on our website at ibhs.org slash disaster discussions podcast and the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety YouTube channel. Connect with us on our social media pages on Twitter at Disaster Safety, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Disaster Safety, and on Instagram at IBHS underscore org. For more great content from IBHS, including ongoing research efforts happening at our facility, episodes of our podcast, and more, visit IBHS.org.